Welcome to the Everyone's a Critic Movie Review Podcast. I am your uh, host for this time, uh, Sean Kernan, professional film critic. With me is my co-host, Jeff Lasseter. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing well. How about you? Not too bad for it being a Christmas week in which uh, we both just simply forgot to go watch movies <laughs> for a movie <laughs> review podcast. It's always a good thing. No, we got plenty to talk about. Um, and and I've got I've been so busy just catching up on everything because I've got to do my best of the year uh, list. Uh, I know we're going to do that for the show next week, obviously, uh, with what with what you've seen. And of course, I've seen everything. And <laughs> so our list will be very different, I'm sure. Uh, but it's still oh, yeah. very interesting. And of course, Bob hasn't seen nearly as much as I think either of us have uh, with his schedule lately. But you know, it'll be it'll still be interesting, and I think he's seen enough to where he can come up with a pretty solid top ten. Oh, I think so. And he's never failed before. <laughs> I will just say this: mm-hmm. this week's movies that I watched, yeah, would never have made the top ten. Ooh. Nothing well, I watched would have made my top ten. So my top ten was done last week. So ah, excellent. Mine is mostly done. I I am finishing up Matilda. Uh, I watched uh, a movie called Ted K last night, which was terrible. Uh, what about Ted I, Kaczynski? Yeah, Charlton Copley plays Ted Kaczynski in a mumblecore Ted Kaczynski movie. I think it is <laughs> how I described. It. Oh God, <laughs> it's very silly. Uh, but uh, yeah, not officially on the show. I don't even know when that if that movie came when that movie came out. It may have come out earlier this year. I don't know. <laughs> Well, let's get started at the movie that you saw that I didn't because I didn't. I just forgot uh, if it came out, which you, you actually saw. I want to dance with somebody. I saw I want to dance with somebody, which um, it was allegedly a biopic about Whitney Houston. Um, as I described it to several people, it was an assemblage of what passes for scenes that passes of passes for pieces of Whitney Houston's life. Um, first of all, I want to say, I want to go out and say, Naomi Aki is a wonderful actress. She is, she has the potential to be a star. This was just not the movie for it. Uh Um, this was, uh, Tamara Tooney from SVU and as the world turns played Sissy Houston. And she was amazing. She was just so like every, I like her anyway, but Everything she did on screen just was great. Okay. Uh, It tells the story of Whitney Houston, who starts off singing her mother's choir. And her mother, Sissy Houston, is already a well-known gospel singer. And uh, Whitney, or Nippy as she's known growing up, is the first cousin of Dionne Warwick. Uh, Sissy Houston gives her, you know, some pointers while she's singing, you know, you have to enunciate every word. And she basically gives, basically gives her the, the blueprint for what made Whitney Houston a star. Uh-huh. Uh, Whitney is then sitting, watching a basketball game and a woman comes up to her named Robin Crawford and they start a gasp relationship, uh, which is, which kind of was well known, but never really acknowledged during her life. And Whitney and Robin basically are a couple through the first third of the movie, um, living together. And her parents know very well what's going on. Uh, You know, Robin is sort of a member of the family, but is definitely not welcome Uh most of the time. 
And then Whitney meets Clive Davis in what I believe is not the way that they actually, uh, he actually saw her for the first time. I, I, that could be wrong. I did not want to research this after seeing this movie, but he, he goes to the club that she's, her, she's backing up her mother at mm-hmm. and her mother is suddenly delivered. <coughs> I'm sick. You have to go out and you have to sing the greatest love of all. So she sings it in front of Clive Davis and suddenly she's got a record deal and is being, she's on the Merv Griffin show. She is, she's going, she's on the road to stardom, Mm -hmm. which means she has to change everything about herself, including her relationship with Robin Crawford. Um, You never get the sense that she is making a choice so much as she's doing what her parents want to do to make her a star. Mm-hmm. It's very obvious that she loves Robin. And then she meets Bobby Brown and she decides, well, I've got to start dating men because that's what my dad said. So why not Bobby Brown? That's just kind of what you get from it. Hmm. And I, it, it was like a lifetime movie, but longer. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the themes of this week is that, I don't understand why every movie has to be over two hours long. Sure. This could have been a tight little story. Could have been much better. Um, could they, I just, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to say this without sounding like I'm trying to be shitty to Naomi Aki because I really like her. She just wasn't Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. I never got the sense that she was Whitney Houston. If this had just been a, you know, a, a star term, like, you know, if this had been a star is born, she would have been great. However, Whitney Houston just she just she never really, to me, captured Whitney Houston. Um, it's still directed by Casey Lemons, who I think is a terrific director, but I it suffers from the script. Hmm. It seems like it, uh, and I say this so much because there's so many things that are just too long to be a movie, but mm-hmm. not quite long enough to be a show. And this would have been a fine Hulu series. But it just, uh, it was two hours and 24 minutes long. And I feel like part of that was because they concentrated on recreating the performances that Whitney did, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. Right. They were well done. Uh, the direction just wasn't really inspired. It just, lo- it looked like a lifetime movie. And I think that if, if you, that was what they were going for, it should have been on Lifetime. Mm-hmm. But some I of, don't think that that's what they were going for. Some of the things that the criticisms I've read about this movie are that, uh, that this has basically been a whitewashed version of, of Whitney's life. Uh, one that was very much approved of by her family. Uh, and uh, and that uh, the LGBTQ aspect of it was kind of a marketing choice as much as it was anything else. Um. I can def- I definitely get the uh, the sense that her, her anything her family might have said mm-hmm. about this movie that was implemented just to get the story on the screen. Um, I, I but I don't I I was I was surprised, pleasantly surprised that one of the very first scenes is her reading Robin Crawford, and they don't come right out and say, I'm in love with you, but I love you. It was said a lot between them. And I think that they, 
I really think if it had been like, you know, if it was just pink washing, I don't think you would have gotten that. Mm, okay. Um, I think that it's, I, I mean, some people might say, Oh, you know, I wanted to see like 10 minutes of hardcore <laughs> gay sex in it. Right. I certainly didn't. Um, but I thought that it would, you know, I was surprised that it was even brought up. I would, I saw the trailers for this with the, you know, the uh, minor key. I want to dance with somebody and was just really worried that it was going to be about, you know, um, or how will I know? I was surprised that it wasn't just about the making of that song because that's Mm -hmm. what the trailer kind of led me to believe. Um, I don't, I don't think that the LGBT aspect of it was, you know, was kind of washed away at all. I wouldn't like um, that from Casey Lemons. She's she's a she's quite attuned in, in with her direction. She wouldn't just include something to include it. No, I think I think it was very respectfully done. Um, you know, Robin Crawford has come out since Whitney died and has said, you know, we had a relationship. We were lovers for a long time, and it continued after Bobby Brown came into the picture. Uh, I really did not like the take on Bobby Brown. I mean, I just. It seemed like once that once they met, got married, a lot of it just was, oh shit, we forgot to add the drug use. Oh god, we forgot <laughs> to add Bobby Christine. You know, it's like right. It was just like really wrote and quickly done. Yeah, it's a, that's another criticism that people have talked about as well is that the movie ends before things actually get really dramatic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that th- this is a kind of movie where. You know, maybe you end this movie on I Will Always Love You. And it's told as a love story between Whitney, a love triangle even, Whitney and Robin and Bobby. Mm-hmm. Maybe that, you know, and I will always love you. And she could be, she could really love both people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did, you did get the sense that her, her sexuality was fluid, but not as fluid as her family might want it to have been. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that her, the way that, the way that it was handled, it was like everything after I will always love you just seemed like it was like, oh shit, we can't make this a three and a half hour movie. We got to cut this down to 20 minutes. And 10 of that, 10 of those minutes are going to be her performing at the American Music Awards hmm. with a dress that I swear to God made me, made me think that Naomi Aki just had a really hairy back. <laughs> At the beginning of the movie, she comes out and it's the American Music Awards and, you know, she's going to sing. And that's a very famous uh, medley that she did. Mm -hmm. But she walks out on stage. You just see her from behind. And this dress, it looks like Ron Jeremy's back. (laughs) It's just this fine and it looks like fine hair. And I was like, did Whitney have a hair problem? And then I'm like, oh, no, that's just the fabric. It really did, though. It took me out of it. How was the rest of the fashion though? Did they was it uh, a parody of the eighties or did it evoke the eighties? No, oh no, they they really nailed it. Um, Whitney Houston was always you know like soft butch. She'd always wear tracksuits and you know sweatshirts over polo shirts and things like that. That was you know what she was known for in the eighties as a model, and that's how she performed at the Super Bowl. Which, for all the criticism I'm giving it, there were really emotional moments for me. Mm-hmm. And that was one of them, the you know, Bowl? seeing her sing that and reliving that moment, which was kind of, that could have, that also could have been a spot where you close the movie. Yeah. You know, so much 
Um, there were so many emotional beats that you could have been, oh, okay, this is a good place to end it. And you could have, you know, you could have filled in her backstory a little more and ended with a sparse star sprinkled banner, or I will always love you. You know, it it just the bookends, the book ending of the American Music Awards was great, but I just feel like it just there's too much between it. And then she lived happily ever after. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> well, there's one there's one everybody knows that she went to this, you know, party in LA and she took drugs and drowned in the bathtub because she was intoxicated. Everybody knows that. Well, they do a scene where she's talking to a bartender and he's like, you know, I saw you about 10 years ago or about 15 years ago, you were performing at the American music awards and I was there. And the, the way the movie makes it seem is that once, once she dies, you know, she she gets the drugs from the guy and you see how, oh, that's how she's been getting the drugs and whatever. And, and then she goes up to her hotel room and she's singing to herself. And then they, you know, they cut to the American Music Awards performance of the medley. And she resists this. She resists this medley throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And then she performs it and it's beautiful. And I feel like that what was missing out of that performance was the fact that she just had talked to this bartender who said, I saw you there. I was there, put him in the crowd, you know? So she sees that like she can, I would have liked to have seen the people who were touchstones in her life that were not necessarily Bobby Brown or Robin, although they do have a nice moment with Robin Crawford during that performance, but you know, like little pe- little people who had just had just a little bit of a part in her life, and mm-hmm. for that to be the kind of culmination, I think it would have tied it a little bit more together, mm-hmm. as to be as opposed to just being the, hey, I'm gonna uh, we're gonna do this performance note by note and beat by beat. So, so would you say it's mediocre or bad? Um, it's mediocre. I think it would be bad if it didn't, you know, if you didn't have those moments that were really really touching. Um, you know, her singing the Star Spangled Banner, you just were caught up in it again. Hmm. And, and you know, her saying, you know, like, here's all the dresses we want you to know. She goes, I'm, I'm going to be me for once. And, you know, some of the moments with her and Robin, you really felt, um, her comeback on Oprah. That was it. There were so, there were a few little nice moments like that that brought it up to mediocre instead of being just a bad lifetime movie. Hmm. That's good. At least there's at least there's that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our, our next film is uh, one that I saw called Old Town Girls. And this is a neo-noir set in China uh, about a girl who uh, grows up without her mother. Her mother disappears like when she's one years old. She turns up when the girl is about 16 and they reconnect. But uh, the mom has been living in the big city for some time and has come back now and is basically in hiding because in the big city, she owes a lot of money. Uh, so she begins to set up this process where there's going to be uh, essentially a kidnapping. Her daughter and another girl are going to go missing, and uh, they're going to ask for the the fathers to pay for them to be returned. That's the setup. Everything in between is this really kind of touching story about a mother and a daughter, and the daughter desperately trying to connect, the mother being not the most motherly type. She would much prefer to be 
uh, maybe a best friend or, you know, she's definitely somebody who's using this girl as a means to an end until she's not until she realizes how truly dangerous this is and that she probably shouldn't be involving this young girl in it. Uh, it's a terrific arc and it really has a, a great deal of uh, surprise and excitement in it. And I, I just really, I really got into this one. Like it was really just, I was trying to do other things while watching it and I couldn't because I kept getting caught up in the story. Uh, it's such a clever movie. It actually starts uh, structurally with the end of the kidnapping, uh, which ends in the most unusual way. Uh, and then it circles back to how we ended up there. And it works out that that actually does work to create a good deal of tension leading up until what you already know, uh, which you wouldn't think, but it actually just does work that way. This is terrifically directed, uh, wonderfully acted, and uh, absolutely nobody knows about this movie except me, I think. Me and like <laughs> a few film journals, I guess, also reviewed it, but I couldn't resist it. I thought this movie was fantastic. I wish I'd seen it. I highly recommend it. This is if you like uh, new noir or neo noir, as they call it, like just taking like the classic noir detective story and kind of modernizing it with uh, you know these dark undertones. But then you have this mother daughter story on top of it. It's that's a really great way to freshen up a very well known trope filled genre. Interesting. I'll have to check it out. All right, uh, that uh, that out of the way, <laughs> we'll get to uh, the meat of the show, uh, which is uh, <laughs> two giant meatball sandwiches known as the whale. <laughs> the whale, of course, directed by Darren Aronofsky and starring Brendan Fraser as a man who weighs over 600 pounds. He's uh, dying. He's uh, working as a teacher online, but he doesn't let his students see him. Uh, he says he doesn't have a camera on his computer. Uh, in the final weeks of his life, he wants to try and reconnect with his teenage daughter, something that his uh, best friend and caretaker, played by Hong Chao, is opposed to. The young daughter is played by Sadie Sink. They do kind of reconnect, but she's such an awful human being that there's really no connecting with her in any way. Uh, not that he's the best. Not that really anybody in this movie is the best. Maybe Hong Chao seems like kind of a, a good person here. Fraser, though, for being who he is, he he's such a good actor. He's so involved. He's so deeply into this character that it's hard not to care about him. That said, he's trapped within this movie that it's obsessed with being cruel to him and it's obsessed mm -hmm. with like stacking that cruelty on top of itself to try and explain how he ends up where he ends up, which is a 600 pound, very depressed man who's uh, not per not really concerned about continuing his life. Um, this movie just irritated me throughout because this guy, as much as he screwed up his life earlier on and did some things that maybe, you know, I don't know, not questionable, like it, it, just things didn't line up the way they should have for him, I guess. He doesn't, he doesn't deserve the kind of cruelty that this movie just heaps upon him in just giant dollops. Uh, I just, Ugh. I grew tired of her being so insanely cruel and her arc, what exactly is supposed to be her arc here? Her arc is entirely defined by whatever delusion Brendan Fraser's character has about her growing. 
<laughs> because she doesn't grow or get better in this movie. She doesn't change from one end of the movie to the next. She is a cruel, awful person from beginning to end. There is no redemption yep. and no attempt to redeem her. And that just leaves this watching, a, just watching the movie, watching her enact cruelty on this man who life has already been pretty cruel to at this point. His boyfriend uh, apparently committed suicide. He became desperately depressed. Uh, he you know, lost connection to his daughter, even though he tried to stay with her. He was, you know, Samantha Morton shows up as, as his ex-wife, who he left to be with this guy and she wouldn't you know, take his calls or take his letters or gifts or anything and just cut him off completely. So, I mean, none of it yeah. is his fault, but then if none of if nothing is his fault, <laughs> then what's the arc of the movie? Like, what are we supposed to be watching for? What is the actual story other than this guy just eating himself to death, which is, I mean, I guess that's kind of classically Aronofsky. You know, he doesn't, he's not here to uplift you in any way. I get well, that's that. That's for sure. I get that. But this movie is just the enacting of cruelty upon one guy for two hours. And I just couldn't get behind it. This movie hates fat people. Hates them. Absolutely. It, it, I know that it's based on a play. Mm -hmm. I know that it feels like it. I would have rather no, okay, his performance is great. Yes. Most of the performances in this movie are great. Hong Chao, I will watch her read the phone book. Mm. She was the the part, she was the most touching part of this movie. Um, for one thing, uh this movie gets wrong is he had three people who cared about him. Mm -hmm. That's three more than anybody who's 600 pounds has. Or even 400 pounds. It's the way that fat people are marginalized. And yes, I'm saying this as a fat person. Uh, the way fat people are marginalized in society, especially fat gay people. I'm surprised he had even one person who cared about him. And when you find out that. And I'm I'm spoiling this movie because if you have it, if you've seen it, you understand it. If you haven't seen it yet, you can fast forward. Whatever. The fact that she cares about him because. Her brother was his boyfriend who had anorexia. Oh, he had anorexia and this guy is so fat. And oh my God, you know, mm -hmm. um, the, the fact that that's the reason she cares about him takes away from her caring about him. And she is the only person in this movie who truly seems to care about him. Yeah. Uh, the more, the missionary from uh, who has this, it's only like this, the, everything in this movie is just, it's just so written for the stage. Yeah. And they didn't, it, it, it's like they took the script and they just staged it and they could, I would have rather have seen this as a stage play. Um, It's to the dialogue is stagey. The, everything, the way it is staged is very stagey. Uh, the motivations and the way that characters talk is, very stagey. Um, the missionary played by Ty Simpkins, who took me a few minutes to recognize him mm -hmm. from all the insidious movies and Iron Man three and all that. He, uh, everything he says and his whole backstory is supposed to be some sort of revelation. And it turns out that it's just a way for the daughter to be cuntier than normal, you know? And 
No, what no, she that, does that, to the that was her kindness. She did that out of kindness. Well, uh, <laughs> the fact that she does something so horrible to this guy, yeah. And Brendan Fraser, his one-dimensional character, is that he's he's dying, but he's happy about it, and he sees the best in everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? That's not that's I'm sorry, it's just it rang completely untrue to me. Um the fact that he is oh no she was trying to help him she was trying to help him and i'm like no she wasn't she was trying to hurt him just like she's trying to hurt you just like she's tried to hurt her mother she wants to hurt everybody in this movie with the exception of hong chow's character because they don't really get a lot of interaction mm-hmm. uh but if she could find something about her you know she would definitely like dig in on it absolutely uh this girl is irredeemable and it's not it's not his fault for leaving because he didn't want to leave her. It's not the mother's fault because she even says this girl's evil. She is not a good person. Stop trying to see the good in her because she's not a good person. I've come to terms with it. I want you to come to terms with it. Don't give her all your money that you could be spending to be in the hospital and trying to help yourself. You know, and that's the thing. It's like, I, I had a really hard time with the fact that he had all this money squirreled away for his daughter because he felt guilty mm-hmm. and then he sees her he meets her again and you know kind of inexplicably calls her out of the blue you know he knows he's going to die and he wants to make peace i get that but you know come over and let me do all your homework for you is just that's just a terrible motivation right um i'm going to give you all my money when i could use that money to go in and have like emergency uh surgery and i it's just It was just everybody in the movie was terrible. And I say that about him. (laughs) I say that about him because he had, he had the means and the opportunities to help himself. And he just didn't. Yeah. No, he didn't. And, uh, and his motivation I think is, is depression, which is fine, but I don't think that's especially well drawn obviously we can see the guy is depressed that's not hard to see but i mean in terms of how they how they address it is not particularly great Uh, but nothing about the the way this movie treats that character is great he has this thing where he's obsessed with this one uh thing this this written uh article or classroom assignment uh on 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 uh what's the book called (laughs) That that famous book Moby Dick. <laughs> Moby Dick. Thank you. Uh, that somebody wrote. He has Hence the whale. It's important to. It's important for it to be read to him. It calms him down. It soothes him. He thinks it's brilliant. He's so happy about it. He's so proud of it. And you're assuming along the way that it's one that was written by one of his students that he is especially proud of having taught them that they led. I thought it. it was written by his boyfriend. I really thought that that was the the essay that was written by his boyfriend. And that Very would have well. made so much more sense. It would have made more sense than what we get, which is that his daughter wrote it when she was much younger or somehow. Uh, and, and, but, but the thing is, is that he swears this is genius and it's never demonstrated once that there's <laughs> anything that she wrote, anything of any kind of genius about this. This is not a well-written thing. This is, uh, it's basically, it's basically a shit post about Moby Dick. <laughs> Basically, and and the fact that like they say a couple times, I tried to get a hold of you, and nothing, you know, your mother wouldn't let me even 
talk to you or anything. And then, like, in the last five minutes of the movie, you find out it's her fucking essay, and mm -hmm. her mom gave it to him because he wanted to know how she was doing. That doesn't jive with the rest of the characterization of the mother or him right. or the daughter. No. It's just, ooh, let's do a twist. Yeah, The twist and would have been, if you're hiring Brendan Fraser to play this character, who is not 600 pounds, the twist would have been, you know what? Brendan Fraser wants to live. And you get a coda at the end where he might be, you know, he might be the size he was supposed to have been in the rest of, earlier in the movie, but he's, he's made peace with everybody. Mm -hmm. If you want, and that's the thing is like, she was a bitch. The wife was damaged beyond all reason, but they could have all had a relationship and that's what he really wanted. Mm -hmm. And that last, oh, I'm good. I'm going to get up and I'm going to walk to you. And then I'm going to just die. It float away. <laughs> oh yes, I'm sorry. Float away. <laughs> he floats away into the, the onto the beach when I was 150 pounds thinner. You know, it's like, come on. Uh, it's it's just, really not good. It's really just not good. And I, I really don't understand. I, it it plays to me in a way like a movie where he, a screenwriter looked at this and thought, I think the only way to make this different from the you know the kind of the redemption arcs that everybody else is doing is to make everybody irredeemable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's my challenge well you you've you've done your challenge you, you you've accepted the challenge and you've won they're all irredeemable but none of them was worth watching <laughs> so congratulations i guess i don't know you know why you want to make had, that if they had not given you that that piece of information about hong chao's character yeah um then i think she would have been the only good character in this movie. It's um, really, I mean, she still is sort of, <laughs> I but mean, she only, she, I think she only cares about him because she feels guilty. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and that's, and that's just one extra bit of cruelty to thrust on the Brendan Fraser character. She never says, Charlie, I love you. Yeah. I don't love you because you are my brother's husband, boyfriend, I love you because I see what a kind person you are inside. She tells other people that, mm -hmm. you know, he has a, he is a kind hearted person, but she doesn't tell him that. Yeah. She gets mad at him and then she sits with him and she doesn't say what she should be saying to get him motivated. You know, she could have easily used the daughter as a leverage point to get him to go to the hospital. No hospitals, no hospitals. Well, you know what, Charlie, you're 600 pounds, you have congestive heart failure, and you're going to die by the end of the week. And that was, the, that's another, that, that's one of those other, you know, it just seemed like a false, you know, timeline. Oh, we've only got a, we've got less than a week before you're going to die. So you have to do all this stuff before then. Yeah. No, it's, no it's, you say he got, he gets hope and then he dies. Okay. That's, I believe that, you know. Yeah, he gets hope. He's going to go to the hospital, and the next day she comes in, and he's died in the night, or you know, just while she's talking to him, he just dies. I would have, I would have, that would have been more acceptable to me mm -hmm. than I'm going to. I'm. She wants him to walk over to her, and he finally does, and then that's when he just lifts off into the sky. Why not? Why not make a movie that's about uh, the daughter reconnecting with him? Why not make that movie? Like, who's made a movie about a six hundred pound guy who gets 
help in the end. It is, you know, he's redeemed through love. Like, yes, she comes in and she's very bitter about him leaving and she doesn't understand the full story. And then throughout Hong Chao kind of hints at what the real story is. And he hints at what the real story is. And she comes to realize that her dad actually loved her the whole time. And she convinces him to get help and take the money that you were going to give me and use it to help yourself. And he does. And he lives. And you've got an uplifting story. Is that why can't we tell that story? Because Darren Aronofsky is a sadist. Um, <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, every right. movie he's done is just like, you know, I, I just, I I don't want to get in a fight about Mother, but he was a sadist in that movie. And... Oh, I agree. No, you're talking to the one person <laughs> who didn't like Mother. <laughs> I, I call out that movie because I'm still, I'm still angry about that movie. I'm still angry you know about what, that stupid trope where a man forces himself on a woman and of course because he did that because he showed himself to be the alpha male she got into it and got excited and and fucks it yeah fuck you Darren. i didn't hate that movie i hated that part of it but i didn't hate that movie Uh, overall yeah this one i just i'm disappointed in it because i as a 50 year old gay fat guy I want to see something that has a little hope rather than I feel attacked because he's drinking out of a two liter of diet Pepsi as I drink out of a 1.25 liter diet Pepsi. <laughs> uh, you know, but it's like, come on. I, why, why does I, I'm, I'm going to ask the question and then I'm going to answer the question. Mm-hmm. Why does it every time you see a very, very fat person in a movie, they are either the butt of the joke, shallow how, or, they they die. They have to die because Hollywood hates fat people. They can't just have a, you know, they can't, it can't just be about him getting through his day as a fat person mm-hmm. and all the little cruel things that happened to him happen because of that, not because of a character flaw, although they they see being fat as a character flaw. The the most honest part of this movie was when the pizza delivery guy waited to see who this guy was. And then he was disgusted by him and ran away Hmm. instead of saying, if it, you know, if it had been any other disability, he would have said, Hey, let me help you with that. Yeah. But he was so disgusted because Charlie was fat that he ran away in disgust. And you know, if, if he had lived and he ordered pizzas, he, the same guy wouldn't have delivered him, you know? Yeah. He cared about him until he saw he was fat. And that's because like every other movie that involves a huge person, you got to hate them and you got to make them terrible with a lot of character flaws. Well, and that's why we got to call the movie the whale too. I mean, I know it's supposed to be related to the, it's supposed to be related to the daughter's essay that means so much to him, but that's bullshit. This is called the whale because he's a big fat guy. That's why this is called the whale. Don't try and bullshit me about this fucking title. uh, Cause I know that's what, (laughs) I know that's what Darren Aronofsky has been trying to do. Uh, This is a double entendre. It is, it is a double meaning. Uh, and and it's it's not a nice one. But then nothing in this movie is ever nice to the Brendan Fraser character. And I think that's why so many people like Brendan Fraser in this movie is because the movie is so cruel to him that we all just kind of go, hey, leave him alone. <laughs> that's the kind of reaction <laughs> that this movie is getting. We have to pause here because uh, for a commercial break, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Everyone's a Critic Movie Review Podcast, part two. I'm Sean Cranan with Jeff Laster and Jeff. Uh, we just talked about the whale. Uh, now I want to talk to you about a documentary called All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. And this is a documentary from director Laura Poitras 
that profiles the life of uh, famed art photographer Nan Golden. Uh, Nan Golden is especially well-known in New York City for her um, photography, her uh, remarkable photography, especially during the 1980s. Uh, as she uh, went on in life, she became an activist, uh, especially when it came to the AIDS crisis and captured some of the most important images that seared into the minds of so many uh, as the Reagan administration tried to pretend that the AIDS crisis wasn't happening. It was people like Nan Golden made sure that everybody knew it was happening. Uh, that uh, She, of course, uh, then goes on to today where she is an activist once more in the opioid crisis. She was addicted to opioids for many years. She lost a sister to a, an addiction to opioids, and she spends her time today uh, working with a group she, that uh, she's created called Pain. Uh, and their goal is to hold the Sackler family specifically uh, uh, accountable for the opioid crisis. And uh, one of the first things that they that they accomplished was working to remove the Sackler family from pretty much the entirety of the art world, which considering that name is was slapped on to everything. And I mean, from the Louvre to everything in New York. Uh, to everything in, around the world, you'd find a Sackler wing on these museums. And while that's a, a lovely bit of philanthropy, and it's certainly supportive of many artists at the same time, it was bathed in the blood of millions of people who died from opioid over overdoses that the Sackler family were directly responsible for by not uh, making sure, by, by simply encouraging people to take something that they knew was more addictive than they were letting on. And they wanted it to be as addictive as possible to, in, or, in order to keep people taking it, even if they need, even if they didn't need it anymore, they wanted people to think that they needed it. And they wanted to create that unending, you know, need for it, uh, for their product. And uh, in doing so, they ruined millions of lives and killed millions of people and to this day, they still benefit from it. And they're still incredibly rich and still incredibly powerful. Uh, and at the very least, you know, just getting their names off those buildings at, at the very least is a nice story, I guess. Uh, realistically, this documentary is just gorgeous to watch because you're looking at, at Nan Golden's amazing photography, the, very, the various different things she created over the years especially in the LGBTQ community. She's just so huge in the way that she was so blatant about capturing what love looks like for everybody, not just for straight people, but for everybody, uh, for, you know, for her multiple partners and the intimacy of her work is so uh, startling. I can't remember the name of the piece that she's most famous for came out in 1986 and it's escaping me now, but it's a it's a powerful, very intimate piece. And everybody said everybody in the art world told her that you can't make personal art. You can't put yourself in your art. People don't do that. And there she is, nude with her partner, with various different partners, capturing the most intimate, personal, poignant moments of her life. And it's just raw and beautiful and brilliant and <laughs> terrifying and i i love i love it so much i i'm just so moved by everything about her and everything about this documentary i when i lived in new york i would go to the museums and i would see a lot of her stuff uh her and cindy sherman and her the the personal 
in Nan Golden work and her work, it was just it's hard to describe unless you're standing in front of it. Um, you know, even it's it's very powerful when you're seeing it on a computer or on a phone or whatever. But standing at MoMA and looking, you know, and you're just standing looking at photos of her and the stuff that she captured and it, it says so much. Hmm. Um, I, I, this is the first time hearing that this <laughs> existed. Oh yeah. Um, I'm definitely going to be watching it now. I can, you know, I, it's something I had, I known existed. I would have made some time to watch to talk about. Yeah. Uh, her her big piece from 1986, A Ballad of Sexual Dependency, which is such a provocative title. I adore that title. <laughs> a Ballad of Sexual Dependency is a pretty great title for a piece that is a, a multimedia experience that she changed throughout the years to include, you know, different people. Her, you know, she's obviously herself and her various different partners over time are included, but also her closest friend, her circle of uh, friends are all in there. And then uh, from there, she just she has this moment where she ends up going into rehab and, and uh, beating her, her addiction and emerging as she does, she goes in just after the ballad of sexual dependency and emerges not shortly after. I mean, half of the friendships that she had are dead, not, not the friendships themselves. The people are dead mm -hmm. from the AIDS crisis. It just wiped out so many people that she knew. And I mean, she was, she, she had to grow up in a second uh, and suddenly become the, the, you know, the, the one person willing to document the darkest aspects of the AIDS, AIDS crisis, the parts where, you know, the, the, the people who are dying and uh, the, those pictures that, that emerged that, that everybody didn't want you to look at of, of people who are just skin and bones, desperately begging for some kind of help. She captured those images and it's so shocking and so moving and, uh, it just reinforces just how evil, evil the Reagan administration was and the Bush administration immediately after them. I, first of all, fuck Ronald Reagan. Absolutely. Um, Amen. What he did to the country, let alone his own friends over AIDS. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Rock Hudson. Oh, yeah. And he was in France trying to get help in the United States and... Ron and Nancy, you know, the Gipper and just say no lady. They just said no. And they would not help them. Uh -huh. They would not have anything to do with them. You know, we're sorry that you're sick. We're sorry that you're probably going to die, but we can't be seen with you. Fuck them. You know, it's just like, they're just the, they're the worst kind of people. Um, <laughs> you know, there's the, the, uh, the movie and the band played on. Yeah. It's an HBO that, movie. That movie killed me. Um, yeah, that's a really hard watch. Uh, I usually watch it around the 1st of December every year, and that the scenes at the end where they're showing all the people that have died. And how, it, and it, you know, it, it, it echoes of that during COVID for me, having, you know, having lost a couple people, having known people who lost a lot of people, not having a generation above me to teach me about being gay and AIDS, you know, and all that kind of stuff because an entire generation of gay men were, are just gone. Hmm. 
Uh, I met Larry Kramer when I lived in New York mm-hmm. and just on the street, just happened to be walking by when he was coming out of a restaurant and I walked him home and we had a nice conversation about it. And I just, you know, I thanked him and he was like, Oh no, 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 it wasn't me. You know, it was, we just, everybody did their part. And you know, it was year, like years after he was very, very angry. And when I look at Nan Golden's work, uh-huh. it, it has that same sort of rage to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, talking to Larry Kramer just a, just a few years before he died, I guess, you know, 10 years before he died now. Um, and he, ha- he had had that rage in the 80s and the 90s. And he was a pariah because of some of the stuff he said in the books he wrote. And, you know, his kind of, I don't know, it almost felt like, and I don't think this is true, but it almost felt like, well, I guess I have to, I have to be a little quieter about it so that people will listen. You can't be quiet when you're looking at Nan Golden's work. You know, it's still screaming at you. Yeah. And then you get to the, you get near the end of this movie and they reveal where the title came from. And it's just, it's, it's a gut punch. It's a gut punch where they reveal uh, what that title is about. Cause it's not, it's, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful title. It's an artful title um, uh, and all the beauty in the bloodshed, but it actually has a a role to play in, in her life uh, that is very powerful and revealing and, uh, yeah, this movie is incredible. It's incredible. Really can't wait to see it. All right. Uh, let's see. I wanted to mention something else. You, that's all the stuff you watched, right? We covered what you watched, right? Yeah, I was, oh, this is the wrong weekend for two and a half hour to three <laughs> hour movies. I did not get to see, um, Babylon. Babylon. Yes. Babylon is Damien Chazelle's uh, new movie uh, with uh, Margot Robbie, Brad Pitt, Diego Calva as the leads. It's set in Hollywood. And the first thing you see in this movie, in the opening minute of this movie, Diego Calva's character works as a sort of a gopher for a big time Hollywood producer played by Jeff Garland. Ew. Uh, But nevertheless... (laughs) Uh, he's he's been tasked with getting an elephant for this party, like an actual elephant. They're trying to haul this elephant up to this giant mansion, and this elephant just takes a giant shit. And you watch this giant shit come out of the elephant's back end all over this migrant worker. And I guess that's a metaphor for the way that Hollywood uses migrant workers. Or I guess that's the right and proper metaphor for that. Uh, But it's still, it's gross. It's disgusting. It's the first thing you see in this movie. Within the next 10 minutes, you will see a woman peeing on a man who I believe is supposed to be Fatty Arbuckle. I believe that's who that's supposed to be. Uh, She pees on him. Then she dies and they have to smuggle her body out of the party while the elephant's coming in. And it's just pure chaos. Then Margot Robbie comes raging into the movie and, finds a room full of cocaine with Diego Calva and they just started just going at this cocaine like just <laughs> like it's the 1980s. Uh, <laughs> and they're talking about their future and what they want to do in Hollywood and she's going to be a big star. And that very night she gets discovered and put in a movie the next day on like two hours of sleep and nothing but cocaine. And uh, he gets discovered as a producer when he saves Brad Pitt's movie by getting Brad Pitt to the set and 
finding a new camera for him and they kill like a hundred extras while making the movie and nobody cares. Uh, and then from there is basically like the arrival of sound in movies sort of ruins Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt's career because neither one of them are great speakers. They were great for a silent film, but their accents and their performances are better suited for silent films as opposed to sound films so that ruins their careers. Diego Calva's trying to save Margot Robbie's character, but he can't, and she just disappears. And then it's three hours long, and it never slows down for a second. And I kind of admire that in a sort of a train wreck quality. But overall, this movie is so gross and addicted to being gross that I find it just impossible to get into. It's just not for me. It's this big, bleary, unending train wreck of a movie that's just chaos and lights and sound and movies and blah, blah, blah. And just like, can I have a second? Can I just have a <laughs> second from the movie? This is three hours of just this train rolling down the tracks toward just a wall that it's going to slam into. And I admire some of it. Some of it's great because Damien Chazelle is a great director. He's a tremendous director. So there's nothing about this movie that I can say is outright bad, aside from the decisions to make it so gross. There is a vomit scene in this movie because we've already had pee and poo. You got to have vomit. Uh, (laughs) uh, So you got to have the vomit. And she just pukes all over uh, uh, Randolph Hearst, William Randolph Hearst. (laughs) <laughs> that's what she does over uh, William Randolph Hearst and Marion Davies. And then she pukes on their carpet some more. And it's like, I mean, honestly, it's, it's like Mr. Creosote <laughs> from the, from the, <laughs> from the Monty Python movie. It's that level. Weirdly that vo- it's so weird. Vomit has had such a moment uh, this year, because I don't know if you noticed, there's a lot of movies, with a lot of vomiting in them for oh, some yeah. reason this year. <laughs> Brendan Fraser. <laughs> exactly. Whitney Houston. I've oh seen God. two movies with it this weekend. Wow. That's amazing. I didn't even know about the Whitney Houston. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. The, I'm exhausted talking about this movie. <laughs> 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 On top of which, like, there's a there's a really interesting idea here where there's like this Asian woman who I think is like supposed to be based off of a very famous uh, Asian actress from the silent films who... Uh, became very famous, but then had to be like pushed, pushed away from being famous because she was Asian. You know, like Hollywood racism had to step in and go, no, you're too big a star. Stop that. <laughs> and that woman's in this movie and she's very interesting and she's always in the background and her and Margot Robbie seem to like vibe a little bit. And then the movie immediately shoves, shoves that aside to get back to her and Diego Calva. <laughs> it's like, wait a second. No, 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 no. I want to look at that. Slow down, slow down the train wreck. I want to see that. <laughs> not out of not out of pure interest, out of just th- that that character and Margot Robbie had a really good vibe going, and I wanted to see where that was going. Yeah, men, but I, great men are not allowed to talk about lesbian relationships because it's always because I admire them sexually. <laughs> I, I said I I was talking about a movie earlier this year that has Aubrey Plaza and Allison Brie, and they have a relationship like a like a babe almost a sexual relationship going on. And I'm not allowed to talk about how that's a more interesting movie because of that. I get accused of being like, Oh, he just wants to see them have sex. No, no. the movie was better when you were going with them as the romance, as opposed to everything else you went with dumb movie. (laughs) I mean, I just, I don't understand. Okay. I don't understand. 
why this movie has to be three hours long. I oh. couldn't see it. I just couldn't. I wanted to see it. I it's Christmas weekend. The weather was terrible. I wanted to see it, but there was just no time. Yeah. And now they're out there in the you know in the ether saying, oh, it's a flop, and it's you know, and it's because people want stuff like this to flop so that they can say that Hollywood is out of ideas and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, it's because it was a three hour movie the week after avatar, another three and a half hour movie that people couldn't see last weekend. So they're seeing a Christmas weekend with their families. This is, it pisses me off because it's like, this is a movie I would have loved to have been able to stream. Yeah. You know, Thursday night when I got home from work, I would have loved to have done nothing but lower the lights, turn the heat up a little bit, and watch this movie. Mm-hmm. Couldn't do it. <laughs> it's just, you know, and I think that with the with the holiday season, and maybe this was a, a spring movie. I think yeah. that would have helped helped it uh, its box office a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I think just uh, by two yeah, cents. I think. I, there's got to be a better way to release this than the way they released it. I mean, I thought the the marketing campaign wasn't great. Uh, I think uh, it it kind of shows how, how full of itself Hollywood is that people think that a movie about old Hollywood is going to be a blockbuster. Like, that's just kind of how the arrogance of Hollywood that they think we yeah. care that much about Hollywood history. Uh, it's not that we don't care, but you, it's, you've got to sell it to us better than this. Uh, I get accused. Everybody who hates Babylon or doesn't like Babylon or doesn't celebrate Babylon, suddenly we're celebrating that it failed. I have no interest in whether or not this movie failed. Uh, yeah. I I don't think it's a I don't think it's a good movie, but I didn't root for it to fail, and I don't think it's Margot Robbie's fault that it failed. A lot of people saying that for some reason, which is bizarre. Uh, Brad Pitt's in the movie too. <laughs> He's a big star. I'll tell you what. Uh, he is the he is not the reason I would want to see this movie. I am not I. I'm not and have not really been a fan of Brad Pitt in the last 15 years. Because hmm. I just kind of feel like he does a lot of the same thing. Hmm. I really loved Bullet Train. I thought I thought Bullet Train was terrific. Uh, but uh, he's he's not bad here. Nobody's bad in this. There's nothing really bad about it aside from just the choices. Like there's a there's a pretty good ending. You know, there's there's this really kind of subtle ending for this movie that I kind of liked that was just Margot Robbie walking off into the distance. She just walks off into darkness and it's like, good place to stop. No, they don't stop there. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you what, if I'm going to watch, if I'm going to spend three hours on old Hollywood, it's going to be with Karina Longworth on. You must remember this. (laughs) See, now that's how they should have sold the movie. They should have put, put, like these stories onto her podcast and had had her you know, like watch watch a story like this in Babylon. Damien Chazelle, like that audience would have turned out for this. That that's the audience you should have sold this to. If you want to sell this movie, but you know, I don't. Maybe they did. I don't know. I've not list. I don't think she has a new one out right now, so maybe they wouldn't be an option. But certainly, that's sell this sell this idea that way, you know, virally as opposed to the way they did it, which is trying yeah. to treat this like. I don't know, like it's a hundred million dollar blockbuster. First of all, this was never a hundred million idea, hundred million dollar idea to begin with. Uh, just, uh, it's just not. I'm sorry. Yeah, I only saw one trailer for it. Never heard about it anywhere else but the trailer when I would go to see movies. Um, I'm hearing from a lot of people. Mm-hmm. 
as I was reading this Twitter thread this this morning, a lot of people said I never I didn't know it was coming out until people were talking about it failing. So you know, nobody wants it to fail. They just mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're gonna have a movie that you want to be big, gotta market it. Yeah. And and you gotta market it more than I mean, if if you're marketing this thing on TV, I mean I, that's certainly why I would never see it. <laughs> I mean, how many, oh, yeah. Not many people are watching TV anymore. <laughs> I haven't watched broadcast TV. I aside from this weekend at my sister's house when it was on. Yeah. I, I don't watch broadcast TV. I watched SmackDown about two weeks ago, WWE, but that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's about the only time I've watched over the air television in the past I, two years. This time of year, I'm streaming Christmas horror movies and watching Murder, She Wrote. I That's just, about it. I just don't think they marketed this movie very well, and I don't think they had a very good idea when they decided to dedicate $100 million to making it. This is not a $100 million movie. I'm sorry. Uh, there's, no. Uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe that's the cocaine budget. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> You got to factor in the cocaine and then, you know, the actual movie is about $25 million. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I do want to mention quickly, and uh, you don't have to join in on this, but I did write an article uh, for uh, geeks.media, which you can find there on the worst movies of 2022. And I just won't linger on it too long, but I'll read you my list, Jeff. My okay. number 10 is Jurassic World Dominion. <laughs> number nine and I, we've argued about this one let's not argue about it anymore dr strange and the multiverse of madness i'm the only person in the world who hates it i hate no, you're not <laughs> i hate it i hate it it's my ninth worst movie of the year uh the bubble uh Jud- judd apatow's awful comedy about awful actors in hollywood uh <laughs> is the far worse version of babylon uh the bubble is uh my number eight my my number seven jeff have you heard of this movie win a trip to brown town uh remember we watched this oh that's right you were there together because you're a <laughs> horrible horrible fucking person and made me watch this terrible movie wasn't it it was awful oh uh, can you, uh, can you imagine there are six movies worse than that <laughs> You can imagine. I will say this. Mm. That movie at least had entertainment value in the way Mystery Science Theater 3000 has. You know, that's that's the only redeeming quality. So true. Uh, number six is Get Away If You Can, which is stars Ed Harris is like a, a character who should be mocking, mocking Brendan Fraser in a movie because he's just that awful in the movie. Uh, it's just unwatchable. The two main characters are two of the worst characters I've ever seen in a movie. I don't understand why anybody wants to make a movie about two people this insufferable. I, I left off movies that I thought, you know, well, nobody knows that movie. And I left them off, like uh, The Curse of La Patasola. Like, that never had a chance to be any good. And no one's ever heard of that. I, I should have left this. I thought about leaving this one off for the same reason. But I hate these characters so much that I wanted the opportunity to talk about talk again about how much I hate these characters. And I do. I hate the characters and get away if you can. And just don't just don't treat my Ed Harris that way. I love Ed Harris. It's awful. <laughs> I like uh, the way Ed Harris dances in Creep Show. Uh, number five is Desperate Hour. Somebody thought it'd be cool to make a suspense thriller about a school shooting. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> not okay. That's not okay. Uh, number that four is terrible. Oh, God awful. Number four is ambulance with Jake Gyllenhaal. Cause I always reserve a space for Michael Bay when he makes a movie. 
Uh, as I always. <laughs> Don't forget the LA and ambulance. Oh God. Uh, I also reserve a space every year for when Diane Keaton makes a movie. Thus, Mac and Rita is my number three movie of the year. <laughs> number two, you're going to be surprised by my number two movie because it actually you would assume it was number one. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022. <laughs> I really hate this movie. Just that that lame trope of uh, murdering in influencers and that i mean i was out of this movie very early on but i was angry when when one of the characters points a phone at uh, at leatherface he goes you're canceled bro yeah oh my god shut up <laughs> just awful awful movie hate it so much on top of which just taking using that title is just blasphemy because that is one of the greatest movies of all time and just just leave my texas chainsaw massacre alone but number one, the worst movie of 2022 is Blonde. Uh, I want to ask Andrew Dominic, the director of Blonde, if perhaps like Marilyn Monroe came back from the dead for an hour and just beat his dog to death. Uh, it's the only thing that could explain why he hates her so much. Uh, this movie is cruel in the same. It's cruel to her like she is Brendan Fraser in The Whale, like she is a 600 pound man. <laughs> Gay man. That's how cruel Blonde is to Marilyn Monroe, but in far more unique and and uh, disgusting ways. There's a scene in this movie, Jeff, where for reasons that only make sense to Andrew Dominic, the camera is positioned inside Marilyn's vagina as she's having a stillbirth child. Why? Why are we here? Why are we looking at this? Why is this being presented in a movie? I don't know. I think it's just to be insanely cruel to a person who isn't here to, you know, not defend herself. She's got nothing to defend. Just, just needlessly cruel to a person for no good reason. And I really, the needlessness of this movie, the cruelty towards Marilyn Monroe for just existing, apparently, baffles me. And that's what makes Blonde the worst movie of 2022. I refuse to watch that. Good. You um, I know that it was based on a novel. Mm -hmm. Not a, It's not a, it's supposed to be biography, but it's supposed to be a novel. But nobody fucking knows that because everybody sees that it's about Marilyn Monroe. They just think it's facts. So I refuse to see it. No, you, um, that, that's absolutely right. Joyce Carol Oates for writing it. That's who wrote it. It's um, monstrous. It is absolutely... <laughs> Like, I mean, there's a scene where where she goes to see uh, JFK and he's just cruel, needlessly to her, like everybody else in her life. Uh, she's jerking him off while he's doing, you know, some kind of uh, you know, uh, diplomatic deal with China or something. And I mean, I think I think he go I think he comes on her face. I think so. I think that's what happens in the scene. Like, why the fuck is this in a movie? Why am I looking at this? Uh, this first of all, this didn't happen. I mean, it's just I'll just say that straight up never fucking happened. I know she may have had a relationship with JFK. I realized that he may have traveled to Los Angeles and maybe consummated that relationship. But this thing where she went to the White House and jerked him off while he was doing business with with uh, whatever world leader he's doing business with, that never fucking happened. And why it had to be so unbelievably cruel just boggles my mind. Um, I'll give you a few of my, my least favorite. Feel free. 
uh, Morbius is well. I'm not doing them in any order because I'm just trying to remember because I didn't make a list of the worst yeah. ones. Uh, Morbius, uh, I, I have a, I, I, Morbius is terrible. It's awful, but I kind of have an appreciation for how the way it's awful. Go ahead. Um, I just, I, I don't like Jared Leto most of the time, um, especially when he's playing himself, like he did in this movie. It seemed like. Mm-hmm. Um, another one was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. I, I, uh, I just think that. It's it was just terrible. I was just like, why bring Sally Harvesty back as a character from the first one? And just treat her like that. Yeah. To, yeah, to just have her just a murderer. Um, if you want to Lori Strode her, then you should have set this as a trilogy and she, you know, her dealing with her trauma, as Jamie Lee Curtis likes to say. <laughs> um, not not kill her in the you know, at the end of the movie and have Elsie Fisher survive and like oh my god uh um <laughs> another one that i just thought was terrible was one i really was looking forward to after halloween kills i was really looking forward to halloween ends mm-hmm. hoping that it was gonna redeem the story somehow yeah it didn't um i actually uh <laughs> brad miska on on Twitter today was talking about the, you know, about how that movie, uh, there were some, how it could have been better. And I, I made the point that this, the movie where Lori is happy and is doing Halloween, like it should be done. That should have been the 2018 remake Hmm. or reboot. Um, I think that when, Lori loses her daughter in the last one and then you know she's coming for michael and then suddenly complete tone shift she's the happy grandma making pumpkin pie and carving jack-o'-lanterns and it's like come on yeah um we've seen trauma Lori in halloween h2o (laughs) we saw you know how how she was fucked up because of what happened to her how about we have a movie where she is happy and she has moved past her trauma and she has a good relationship with her family and then michael breaks out Um, i did not like the fact in the 18 remake that they weren't related because it really made no sense why she would why why would she even be in this one if they're not related and why would he be obsessed with her right right you know they try to explain that in the 2018 one but then why okay that's fine why is he coming after her family and other friends in this new trilogy at all. You know, it's like the, the fact that, you know, now, well, she's happy, but she might be Michael Myers. Now at the end of this one, it was just <laughs> like, what is David Gordon Green doing? What the fuck is he doing? Who knows? Um, I just, that was, it, it just, it was terrible. So was the Firestarter remake. Oh yeah. That was um, bad. That was completely close to making unnecessary. Work. Yeah. Completely, completely unnecessary. Um, I, I don't understand why they did it. And yeah. why does Zac Efron have to be in these terrible movies? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, he's a good looking guy. He could do, he could be the star of like 
a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. But he chooses Firestarter, the remake that just doesn't even matter. Yeah, uh, weird choices all around for that one. Um, I, I, again, I'm going to reiterate that I did not enjoy this week's movies that I saw. So I don't want to say that I want to dance with somebody was one of the worst, but it was pretty, I mean, it was pretty much up there. It was, you know, it's not something that I ever want to watch again. Right. Um, but I think out of all, you know, out of all of them, it was just, that was, those were the ones that really stuck with me. I haven't seen Black Adam yet, and I've heard that's terrible. Um, I could, but I just. <laughs> <laughs> What's the point? There, they've, and I'm like, they've removed <laughs> it from canon now, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, and you know what? That's one of the worst things about 2022 is this whole DC universe implosion. Mm-hmm. Um. And, and I've been, I've kind of held my tongue on social media because I just don't want to listen to all the the Star Wars fanboys who hate Star Wars. But they're complaining about there not being any sort of roadmap for the sequel trilogy. Yet they're sucking the dick of every DC movie that comes out. Like, oh, look at how it all ties together. And it doesn't tie together. It hasn't tied together in years. Um, you know, this, and yeah, this love for Henry Cavill all of a sudden is very interesting. Like I, th- I liked him in Batman versus Superman. I didn't like him in Man, Man of Steel. I, I hated him prior to Man of Steel. I thought he was one of the worst actors working. Uh, this, this sort of love affair that fans have with him now is almost bizarre to me. Oh, it's because it's, it's they're contrarians. Yeah. It's why they don't like Star Wars. It's why they don't like, you know, I don't like Wonder Woman 1984 because people like the first one so much that obviously we have to hate this one. <laughs> you know, and I don't, it wasn't a great movie at all. No. It was fine. It was fine. It was, Kristen you know, Wiig was, was a weird fine. choice. Yeah, it was fine, but everybody hated it. And now they're like, oh, I can't wait to see more because they're not going to make any more. I, I, what what Warner Brothers and DC is doing baffles me. They made an entire Batgirl movie or Batwoman movie with the return of Michael Keaton as Batman, and they shelved it. Mm-hmm. I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> I've never I've never seen anything like it, and I and I've seen a lot of people like. Un, like there's a way too much understanding for that decision. Like yeah, it's a business choice. Like really? <laughs> like, yeah, okay. I mean, I, I yeah, it is a business choice, but that's not a really a great defense of this idea that you paid hundreds of millions of dollars to make a movie that nobody gets to see now. <laughs> uh, I, Batman, Michael Keaton, Batman. What the fuck? Ah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I it's truly just mind blowing. I mean, perhaps maybe the movie's just absolute garbage. Who knows? I don't, but I mean, this same company re- released Catwoman years ago. <laughs> they had to know that was a piece of shit. <laughs> Catwoman is enjoyable as a in a mystery science theater. 3000 <laughs> right. 
But compare, I mean, I, they had to know I, when they put Catwoman out into the world, this movie is not good. Like there was no oh. fooling them. They couldn't fool themselves into thinking they'd spent spent their money wisely and made a really terrific movie they should put out to the public. So how do they go about looking at this movie and saying, well, this isn't very good. We don't think it'll make enough money to, to be successful. We're going to just shelve it. How do you make that decision? Like, how does that, how is, how does that decision track? No idea. I, I, I just, I, it baffles me. I wanted to see that movie so bad before they ever said they were going to shelve it. And I'm just hoping that somewhere there was an intern who got a hold of a USB drive with it on there and is just trying to figure out a way to release it where they don't get sued. Mm-hmm. That's my only hope, you know, for it, because it's like, for years, I've been saying I want to see Michael Keaton as Batman. He's always been my Batman. He was the Batman in my formative years. Mm. And <laughs> I would absolutely murder children to be able to see Michelle Pfeiffer back as Catwoman. Mm. Yeah. And they were ta- they've been talking about that, doing a Batman Beyond movie where they are together. And I'm just like, ah. Oh. I mean, Take my money. Why are you not why are you not giving this the thing we want to see? Like we want this. Oh yeah. I I we we're not the only ones. We can't be the only ones who want to see that. There is an entire subculture of gay guys on Instagram that would alone make you a billion dollars for that Athlete. movie. I mean, it's just the the catwoman obsession is real. How does an entire, how does one company screw up a property, two properties, Batman and Superman so badly? Like it's just, it's kind of astonishing. It's, it's the biggest layup in the world and they keep missing it. And you know, everybody bitches about Marvel and oh my God, everything has to be a superhero movie now. Well, you know what? That's because Marvel does it right. They make really good movies aside from, aside from Multiverse of Madness, they make really good movies. (laughs) But that part, that movie is part of a wider story, and they all I they all fit together. They are planned out so far in advance that they fit together in multiple ways. Mm-hmm. All right, you know we're it's gonna, not not. We have to pause here because we're out of time again. But uh, we're going to okay. continue with our classic after this. And it's time to talk about our classic this week on the Everyone's a Critic Movie Review Podcast. And this week we are talking about Batman Returns. We were just having a huge DC conversation, so it's appropriate. Uh, This movie turned 30 years old this year and uh, is still as relevant as ever with the conversations about Michael Keaton returning as Batman, uh, which is now, of course, not happening. Uh, And... (laughs) Batman Returns is, the, of course, the, the follow-up to uh, 1989's Batman, which is an absolutely iconic uh, movie beyond just being a comic book movie. Um, it's a follow-up that, for me, isn't great. I don't love this movie. Uh, the villain is the Penguin, played by Danny DeVito, who is a, uh, a rejected child who grew up in the sewer, raised by penguins, and uh, grows up to be this savage villain who wants to... Uh, becomes part of a scheme put together by Christopher Walken where he ends up running for mayor of Gotham and kind of fooling people into thinking he's the sort of underdog figure when in reality, he's just a villain and out to out to get Batman. Also Catwoman is involved and she's kind of the tweener. You know, she's not good. She's not bad. She's a little bit of both. 
Uh, she's Batman's love interest. Michelle Pfeiffer is really all this movie needed. It didn't. I could. This is a great. There's uh-huh. a great movie here that doesn't have gross, disgusting Danny DeVito in it. <laughs> I love Danny DeVito. Don't get me wrong, but his take on the and Burton's take on the Penguin is just wrong. I mean, just just from the from every aspect, the the conception of the Penguin is just wrong. Uh I'm I'm not saying that I that I you have to do it the same way as everybody else did it, but the fact of the matter is is that Burgess Meredith's take on the character in the '60s TV version of the character is way better. <laughs> it's just a way better, funnier, campier, more outlandish, more interesting version to me than this character who feels like uh, just just this this burdensome character who just weighs down the whole movies without he has no charm. He has no, uh, he's just all malice, which is fine for a villainous character, but I I prefer Mike Villain to have a little bit of charm when it comes to, you're making a Batman movie here. Why can't the villain have a little bit of charm? Burgess Meredith was all charm. Uh, like, I, I just, why not build upon the version of the character that's out there and build something new from that platform? Why have a character who's like just gross and disgusting and he's got this ugly, like he's shaped like an egg and he's just, just uh, the, the fish you got to eat fish heads. Like, Oh God, gross. Hate it. Hate it. Hate it. Ruins the movie for me. Just make a Catwoman movie, man. <laughs> just make a Catwoman and Batman movie. And have Christopher Walken's character be the real big bad that's between Batman and Catwoman. You've got enough. The, everything that that comes with the Penguin feels like it's just tacked on almost. Like he's just there to to push the plot forward a couple times. Uh, and he interrupts the he he interrupts a far better movie multiple times. This movie is one of my favorite superhero movies of all time, and it's strictly. Because of Catwoman and Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't hate this iteration of the Penguin mm-hmm. as much as you do. Um, I It's not. It was the first, you know, kind of, oh, God, we have to have more than one villain. And, you know, then every subsequent Batman movie after that, we had to have two and three and, four, you know, everybody. Mm-hmm. Had all his rogues gallery had to be included in every movie. And what you said about Catwoman and Batman being the crux of the story, absolutely true. Uh, I think the disgusting look of the penguin is great, but I, and I get where I, I just think that there are two distinct stories here. And we should have gone with one, and that one should always be Catwoman. Mm-hmm. I did not like Michelle Pfeiffer until I saw this movie. Hmm. I, I didn't not. I, I shouldn't say I didn't like her. I just didn't care about her. Yeah. And this is the movie that made me go, "Oh my God, Michelle Pfeiffer is a goddess." Hmm. Um, just her physicality. The you know she she moves like a cat. Uh, the whip work is amazing. Um, her. <laughs> her face when she just stands there and just has a beat and then says meow. Yeah. Perfection. Absolutely. Uh, Christopher Walken in this movie as Max Shrek. Ha ha Max Shrek. (laughs) 
the guy who played Nosferatu. Uh-huh. Um, he's great. I mean that that the interplay when he throws her out the window. What are you doing? Oh, uh, you know, I was just I was looking. Oh, I was just looking for something, and I came across these files, and uh, you know, thought you can kill me. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh? 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 And then he throws out the window, and just like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, when she comes back into her apartment and she smashes the hello there and turns into hell here. Yeah. Uh, iconic. The, the suit. Oh, fantastic. Interplay between her and Batman. I, I, if you took the penguin completely out of this movie would still be the best Batman movie out there. Uh, I do. I do think that Oswald Cobblepot as a character could have been somebody that they all knew and they didn't know that he was the penguin necessarily mm-hmm. instead of having the creepy penguin. And then, you know, then he becomes Oswald Cobblepot. Um, I, what, you know, Burgess Meredith, he kind of set the standard for the character, but even if Danny DeVito had played him without all the prosthetic work, I don't think you would have needed it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I agree. I agree. I think I think it would have been a better character, though, and especially with the arc of him becoming the mayor. Who's going to vote for a guy that looks like that? First of all, um, <laughs> did you see what happened in 2016? <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but I mean, there's just at no point did I buy you him. Look at Mitch McConnell. I've, I never uh, bought him as being interesting enough as a, or charming enough to 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 have to pull off that particular arc. And he doesn't, but I mean, uh, in the end, but <laughs> it's still, a t- it's a dumb arc. It's a dumb arc for yeah. this character. Whereas if it had been the, that something built upon the Burgess Meredith version, that character, absolutely. That character could absolutely be a politician. Like he's built you know, as a politician in, in that version. Think about if, if Danny DeVito had played it less prosthetics, you can still mm-hmm. actually, he can have prosthetics. But he just, he, you know, he puts makeup over himself like the Joker did in the first one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so he's not that sickly white. Uh, you know, he's more of a a regular looking guy with just a big nose. And he's known as a penguin because he always wears the bow tie and whatever like that. Um, if you had done something like that and then he comes home and he takes off the makeup mm-hmm. and he's that Danny DeVito, I would have bought that. Absolutely. You know, he'd gone his whole life because he was rich. His parents didn't want him to be what he was. So they made him wear makeup and they made him, you know, be part of society and it pissed him off. So he was going to steal all the firstborn children of Gotham. Why not? You know, that instead of why would anybody vote for this guy, you know, yeah. as it's is a weird choice uh, for a story. Especially when you've already got so much plot going on. I mean, there's already plenty of plot uh, yeah. in this movie that that could have been explored, and it would have made more time for Batman, Batman and Catwoman. <laughs> yep. And I'm all for that. Make more time for that. Absolutely. The one thing that we've not talked about at all is Keaton's take on Batman this time, which uh, is uh, it gains a couple of dimensions. I thought. Uh, I think he's. I think in this version of it, he's really growing into this character. It really kind of makes me wish he'd had more time 
as Batman because what he's doing with this character, what he what he's slowly developing throughout is more personality on the Bruce Wayne side. Uh, that's adding dimensions also to Batman. And certainly that coming that comes through in the relationship with Catwoman is this kind of there's there's a lot of character development, I think, with Batman in this version. I would have loved to seen him go again. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, George Clooney and Val Kilmer were fine. Mm -hmm. But the they those movies were never about Batman. Those were about his rogues gallery. Yeah. This, you know, his his movies were about him as Batman, no, regardless of what Jack Nicholson did or Michelle Pfeiffer did or Danny DeVito did. Those movies were starring Batman. They're built upon the foundation of Batman. Like those characters yeah. uh, stand out because he's such a great Batman. Uh, and, and that's not true of the Val Kilmer or, or George Clooney version of it. He's in those movies. He's just completely overshadowed like the, the Batman as a character. Which is weird because then you're introducing Robin as well. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> like that's a weird relationship that needs exploration and doesn't get it. While we're focused on like Arnold Schwarzenegger making ice puns and Uma Thurman being weird. And man, those <laughs> movies got fucked up. And I think that they would have been more grounded had he stayed in the role. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're so, you know, you're. Oh, we've got this new Batman, and I George Clooney is fine as an actor, and in some things he's really, really good. But he was just a kind of a blank slate for the villains. Yeah. Um, same with Val Kilmer. You know, it was just like they, they were just there; they weren't the catalyst for the story. They were handsome, and they filled out the suit, and that's really what yes. all all that uh, Schumacher ever cared about. Yes. <laughs> uh, now, you I, know, just, I mean, the comic books, um, as I understand it, are rife with stories of Batman being Michael Keaton's age. Now, like, and mm -hmm, yeah, why not go back to that right now? Like, would uh, that would that not be a great idea to have like a Batman who is Michael Keaton's age, who is you know ready to turn, ready to trying to leave this life behind, but keeps getting pulled back into it. There's a younger Batman maybe coming coming up behind him that he's bringing up behind him, uh, trying to hand off the mantle. And I think that's a great idea. I think there's a great movie to be made of that. I think I think a lot of it is they've already made that. I think in Batman Beyond. I think it is. I'm not. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm not a. I'm not a big on the animated DC stuff. I've never spent any time on it. I'm just. I know this from watching a a show on YouTube called "The Top the Fourth Wall," <laughs> which is a show I just adore, uh, where the guy reviews comic books. That's that's my entire that's the entire frame of my reference when it comes to old Batman. But I know of like very popular, very well, uh, well, well thought of stories about old Batman. Yeah, I, I my uh, my experience with Batman Beyond and some of the animated stuff is pretty much just from hearing Kevin Smith talk about it on his podcast. <laughs> um, now it's fat man beyond. And I think that, <laughs> and I haven't listened to that in a long time, so I could be completely off. However, the, the thought of having older Batman training a new Batman or Batgirl or Batwoman, whatever, 
just oh, he's just my favorite Batman, and he he. I was one of those people who, when I heard he was going to be Batman, I was like, Mr. Mom, what? <laughs> right. And I wasn't exactly gung ho about him as Batman. Mm-hmm. If you get what I'm saying. Sure. <laughs> um, but he just, I just would kill to see that, especially now that he's had, you know, kind of a resurgence since Birdman as, you know, playing that kind of the vulture and Mm -hmm. he's very like winged (laughs) i guess so seeing him step back into the batman role would just be just so great and i just i'm so like pissed that they canceled that movie same same i i don't i don't understand it i i i i've heard people try to explain it as like a, from from the aspect of stocks and insurance and uh, budget and whatnot, I've heard people break it down and call it a good business decision. I still think it's garbage. I, I don't think that justifies. I don't think they're justified in doing what they've done. Uh, I just keep pushing the release date back and just never release it. Like <laughs> you know, just let yeah. it fade from everybody's memory. Like, weren't they making that? And then it's gone. <laughs> no, announcing it, come on out and say that you're never gonna see this. I, I honestly thought when they did that that this was like a marketing stunt and that they were going to uh yeah, that they were gonna retool it a little bit in the background and then and then okay, big splashy announcement. We are putting it out, and here it is, and you get to see it next month or something. Like, I thought this was a stunt, but apparently not. Well, the fact that they said that, well, it was never going to be good enough to release in theater, so we were just going to dump it on HBO Max. But now we're not going to put stuff like that on HBO Max anymore because it's going to be Discovery Plus. You know what? I guarantee you, if you said Michael Keaton returns as Batman and you put it out in the theaters. A hundred million dollars easily, first weekend. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I, I completely agree. And even if, even if it's bad, and people come out of it going, "That was awful. Why did you do that?" You've already got their money. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, we don't know it's going to be bad. You, you're coming out and telling us maybe that it's going to be bad is kind of bad news for it. But like, we don't know going in that it's going to be bad. You're still gonna pay you for tickets to see it. <laughs> I was in this like, you know, we were having that Babylon conversation earlier. People saying you're celebrating uh the failure of Babylon. And it reminded me of this argument that uh that M. Night Shyamalan made about his movies years ago. Yeah, well, they're all they're all incredibly popular because you see they made a hundred million dollars. So clearly everybody loved it. And it's like, no, ticket sales don't conflate to people actually liking the movie. They just bought a ticket. That doesn't mean they liked what they saw. <laughs> it's to- two totally different things. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh. you, you got our money, you know, take, we want to give <laughs> you money, Discovery. <laughs> That's all we want to yes. do. I don't, because I don't, I don't pay to see tick. I don't pay to see movies, but Jeff wants to give you his money. <laughs> Let yeah, him I got to figure out a way to not do that anymore. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I don't. I don't understand the the choice. I mean, I really don't. Anything don't know either. To add about uh, Batman, I, one of my formative movie memories, and one of the one of the reasons, like why I became uh, so enamored of movies as a child, was that first weekend of Batman. 
and going to a theater in Davenport and this sea of people that I'd not seen outside of a sporting event. Uh, I think they had to change every every theater to being a Batman theater. <laughs> like every every print they could get, they had to have because like the line was out the door around the building. And once you actually made it inside the building, you're still waiting for like two hours before you could actually get to a screening that was that had tickets available. Yeah. Uh, and then it was just, I mean, this sea of humanity. Uh, there was not space to breathe in that in that theater lobby uh, before we could get inside and actually watch the movie. I this was keep in mind before you could buy tickets online. Oh yeah, before the internet internet uh, was widely used. Um, I remember the hype on MTV. I remember a news story about it and the premiere in Milan. Mm -hmm. And I picked up my friend and drove across the bridge and the line was crazy, but we got into the very first show on a Thursday night. It was the first time I remember a Thursday night show. And. Oh, wow. The just, I, what I remember is standing in the lobby of the showcase cinemas in Milan, Illinois, which I couldn't even find where that was located at this point, Mm -hmm. but and everybody was so excited and there were Batman t-shirts everywhere. And, you know, people who looked like it was the first time out of their house in months. <laughs> and the hype was so real. I did so much Batman artwork that summer. And just, I think I saw the movie three times. We had a foreign exchange student and he loved Batman. So we went and saw Batman. It was one of the only things that we even kind of talked about. Hmm while he was there for a month. Um, it just kind of, everybody was talking about it. And it's the first time I, as I was in high school, but I remember everybody talking about it. Um, I did see star Wars in the theater with mm-hmm. you when we were much younger, but it was the first time I remembered every, everybody was talking about Batman. Yeah, it was, it was, it's quite something. I don't think we've seen, anything quite like it since then even the marvel movies like because theaters got bigger uh, and i i don't know what it was like at my like because i was in davenport and the, the, the lobby was probably a lot smaller the theaters were smaller in, in the yeah. uh, davenport uh, version of that theater uh but i would have loved to have seen it in Milan. those theaters were amazing those were so huge those auditoriums yep wow massive auditoriums loved that Probably would have been much more comfortable there <laughs> as, opposed <to> the, <laughs> as opposed to the way I saw it, which also probably a formative memory of being terrified of crowds. <laughs> well, probably. <laughs> I, I just I, I remember, just remember having to cling to my mother's hand so I didn't get lost in this <laughs> sea of people. <laughs> I remember being so excited for Batman Returns. Um, I saw it with a boyfriend in Chicago. I was up visiting. Uh, during summer and we snuck away to see it and you know like i was i think i was 20 uh and see, seeing it for the first time was just we we didn't even look at each other through the movie we were just kind of so 
absorbed in it. Mm-hmm. And I came out of it wanting to be Catwoman. And uh, he came out of it wanting to be Batman. So it should have worked out. But <laughs> You know, as, as I sit here looking at my uh, Happy Meal cup, I think it was McDonald's that did the tie-in. Oh, wow. Um, you know, looking at my cup that I found at a thrift store recently, it just kind of brings it all back of trying to collect them all. And that was Batman was one of the first movies that I remember like actively going out and trying to get stuff. Yeah. And Batman returns was no different. And it had a Susie and the Banshee song in it, who I was really into. Um, it was a Christmas movie, but uh, it was just like, <laughs> Dump Danny DeVito and it was a perfect movie. It's a far better movie. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt. Absolutely. We can completely agree on that. Nothing against Danny DeVito. I love Danny no. DeVito. He's tremendous in everything else. Just not this. <laughs> they just made a terrible, terrible choice with, with that aspect of it. And it's also kind of sadly the beginning of the end for, for, for the Batman of the time, you know, Keaton's Batman and, the the subsequent batman after that uh his just that he he's the crack in the armor for me that that leads us to that drought of batman movies that comes after it so what what was your take on the nolan batman when it came back um (laughs) i'm gonna get kicked off the show for saying this (laughs) i am not the biggest christopher nolan fan yeah I well, then you're with you and Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind them. I liked, uh, I liked the the Batman movies that he did. Um, I actually got to meet a lot of the people in it in uh, the Dark Knight because they filmed downtown Chicago when I was working in downtown Chicago, and my friend and I would literally go stalk the production for a while. Met Eric Roberts outside the Berghoff. Nice. He was really cool. Oh, that's uh, good. Saw Heath Ledger. He's such a weirdo. So I would, it's like, <laughs> it's interesting. Oh, no. He was very, very like, uh, we were kind of standing around watching them as they were going uh, in and out of the Berghoff. And, and my friend was like, you know, kind of really excited. So he came over. He talked to us. We got a picture taken. Um I, of course, you know, I'm the kind of person who I always want to talk about something else they did, <laughs> you know? So for me, it was a Popo Grano Village, but, <laughs> um, and he was just, he was really nice and, you know, he was, he seemed like he was very clean. Yeah. You know, not, not manic really or anything, just kind of, he was very happy that he was having a sort of resurgence. Um. Not, you know, not like, oh, dude, you know, like, oh, yeah, I love that movie that was there, but just all right. And he was very professional about taking the picture. He's like, okay, stand here. I'll stand here. All right. Are you ready? Oh, and of I, course, I would never. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate that. Like, I cannot, like, it is so unnerving to me, that whole situation of trying to take a picture with a, with a celebrity because I don't want to be an inconvenience and I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to yeah. fumble over it. So to have them take control of the situation and just get it done, that is so awesome. <laughs> well, and the th- and the thing is, is if like if a if a celebrity enjoys 
meeting their fans. Um, they do this a lot, mm-hmm. and you know it's kind. And I, it, it's yes, it's sort of an invasion of their privacy to go up and ask for a photo. But uh, Michelle Fiza- Michelle Visage, who uh, is the co-host of RuPaul's Drag Race, she said on a pa- podcast years ago, "Okay, I'm going to be the person who knows exactly how to take a photograph." So we can get it done. Because if you come up to me and I'm busy and I don't really want to, I still, it's something that you want to do and you are, you know, you're supporting me. So I'm going to go out of my way to do it. And I'm going to make sure that we get the best one. I, you know, I'll, she'll sometimes take the the camera or the phone and do the selfie herself. So hmm. she can frame everybody just right. Um, as opposed to giving it to a friend. Yeah, you know what I, I mean. Like, I love who doesn't that. know what they're doing and is very nervous. And yeah, and I think people like her, Eric Roberts, who's right. I don't, I don't, I'm not a bit. I've I've met a lot of celebrities, mm-hmm. but it's always kind of been on a like like Edie Falco and I sat and talked at Starbucks for like <laughs> an hour while I was sitting there drawing, and I never once thought to ask her for a photograph. Yeah. You know, I've I've never I've met some really famous people, and everybody's like, "Well, show us, show me the picture." I didn't take a picture because I don't I don't want to be that you know that person that kind of interrupts them their lives and oh I'm just I'm just talking to you because I want the photo op. Wow! So, Edie Falco from Avatar: The Way of Water. That's amazing. <laughs> well, then it was uh, Nurse Jackie. Thank you very much, and The Sopranos. <laughs> It was, we had, we actually had a connection. I was kind of like seeing often on somebody who she worked with and I had met her before as a, as a uh, consequence of this person. Hmm. Um, and then I was, I like to sit at Starbucks and draw. It's, you know, it's just like, it's very relaxing to me to sit and just draw, have a coffee, chai, whatever. I like to write there and, too. So yeah, I get it. And I was sitting there at Starbucks and it was, I think it was the one on eighth Avenue in New York. And I, I can sense when somebody's kind of looking over my shoulder and I just kind of glanced back and it was her and she goes, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm like, no, no, you know, feel free. And um, <laughs> so she's like, why, you know, Oh, wow. And with her, with her South Jersey accent <laughs> and I was like, you know, we've, I think we've met before. And she goes, oh, really? And I told her, yeah, you know, through this person who doesn't deserve to be named. Um, <laughs> and, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And she said, you know, I don't know if she actually remembered mm-hmm. the interaction before, but she said, oh, I know that person. So, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then I said, you know, feel free to have a seat if you want to watch. I, I don't mind. And so she sat there and we just talked while I was drawing and never once said anything about herself. Wow. You know, she wasn't like, well, when I was doing the Sopranos, or, <laughs> she just she was a very curious person. Yeah. And that's what I appreciated. Um, so is cool. Eric, so is Eric Roberts, you know, during Batman uh or the Dark, during Knight. The Dark Knight. He, you know, he was like, Oh, do you work downtown? What do you do with some fun stuff to do? Do you, you know, do you go out downtown? Where do you live? All that. he's very, very nice about asking questions and stuff like that. Um you know, seeing Heath Ledger, not really having much of an interaction with him, mm-hmm. that was 
you know, he was just, you know, that kind of like puts his head down and waves his hand and yeah. Um, but you know, you got to, you got to see some of the people that you would recognize as part of the, as part of the movie once you saw it. But, you know, I, that's why I appreciated the Manila movies, I think a little more Okay. because of the fact that I got to see that I was living in Gotham at the time. <laughs> I liked all uh, three of the the uh, Nolan Batman movies. Yes, I did like the last one especially as well. Uh, and same. I I just think that I think Heath Ledger's death changed that movie in such a way that that it had a had a profound effect on the way the third one turned out. So maybe it didn't quite complete the vision that I think Nolan had in mind. Certainly, they leave it open for Joker to be there, and then having to you know kind of ignore the fact that he's not there. Uh, yeah. It had an effect on how they played out that movie, but I think they made the best of, of a bad situation and made a really interesting Bat movie, uh, Batman movie. Uh, then Affleck, Affleck's Batman, um, but I think was a he was a good choice. He fills out the suit well. Um, I think he's stuck with a director who really isn't a great director <laughs> overall. He's a good mm-hmm. spectacle director, like he directs big spectacle uh pretty well you know he knows how to he knows how to make big things happen but i don't think he knows how to quite get to the heart of a character and he leaves that to his actors and i think affleck is a guy who thrives under somebody who's more engaged with him uh and and engaged in the actorly process and i think affleck would have benefited from a director who was more interested in getting something from him as opposed to the director he was with who was just kind of like just do your thing. You figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Can you, uh, could you imagine Nolan directing Baff- Batfleck? I think you would have got more out of him. I think you would have found. I think it would have just been. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I. Some, some actors just, ha- just need a really good director who has a good, strong hand to give them a, a little push in a, one direction or another. Affleck, I don't think is an actor just like Mark Wahlberg is not an actor who can just go find the character. He needs somebody to guide him to it. And, and when he gets guided to it, he's very, very good. Uh, and, I, and he still finds something in this Batman to make it work, but not as well as I thought it could have overall. Yeah. Well, I think and that, that kind of falls into the, we're trying to build the Marvel universe in the DC universe. And, you know, we're going to get who who's, who's the Robert Downey Jr. For the DC universe. Yeah. Let's lay it all on Ben Affleck. Yeah. You know, cause he's, he's a big star. He was very, he, he, he he was the perfect Bruce Wayne. He was to me the best Bruce Wayne since Michael Keaton. Noble, stoic, still kind of charming. Yeah, absolutely. He he's just yeah, that that's a good take on the character. Absolutely. A little detached. Yeah. You know, he's a billionaire and he's Batman, so he's he can't be you know, too like, oh yeah, dude, let's party. Fiery Whereas rage think, like behind his eyes. I thought it was really great. Like you you yeah. you, you bought that he blamed Superman for for what happened and and was righteous mm-hmm. about it. Uh, and I I I bought that completely. I also like I thought he made Henry Cavill better. 
Uh, I, I'm, a, I'll say it. I mean, we said it on the show. We were one of the few people, all three of us, myself, Bob, and Josh, liked Batman versus Superman. Uh, we, we enjoyed the movie. Uh, I don't think it ages well. Like if I look back on it now, I can definitely see some of the things that people hate about it. But I did enjoy it when I watched it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, like I said, I think Affleck it does make Henry Cavill better via their chemistry. Yeah. Uh, what about Pattinson? We'll just wrap this up on because we're almost out of time again. But uh, what was your take on Pattinson's uh, Batman? Because I thought it was tremendous. I loved the Batman. Um, like I said, I think I I think we talked about this before. I I I think could have it could have been about a half an hour shorter, mm-hmm. and they could have gotten rid of uh, Colin Farrell's Penguin. Yeah, they wanted to and set it would have been much tighter. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been a much tighter movie. Um, but as far as Robert Pattinson goes, I think he is a very, very good Batman as a detective. You know, it, he he brings back that the detective of the detective comics. Absolutely. And, and I, I th- think that's th- very important. Very smart direction to to allow him to have that aspect of the character and to bring that part of the character to the fore. They they found good ways to highlight his uh his sort of uh sherlock holmes qualities uh, i really yeah. enjoyed that and uh the 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 eye makeup explaining the eye makeup was great just like a little just a little nod to everybody who was going to be pissy about it <laughs> I thought that was great uh just oh, yeah. a really smart really smart movie uh great pacing to it uh, and a great look uh as well and him and, and his catwoman he and his catwoman have tremendous chemistry that i want to see going forward yep all right, Jeff, we are, we are done. Thank you. Uh, we'll talk Thank again you. next week when we bring you the best of 2022 on the Everyone's a Critic Movie Review, movie review Podcast.